Weird Worlds of Ice and Snow, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. You find them throughout our solar neighborhood, planets, moons, comets, asteroids, and more, all with stuff that looks and acts like ice and snow, even if it's made of far more exotic stuff than water. We'll talk about some of them today, with a focus on Saturn's moon Enceladus. That's where Colin Meyer, Jacob Buffo, and their colleagues have modeled the thick ice and the plumes that shoot far into space from those so-called tiger stripes at the South Pole. It's entirely possible that these geysers come from much closer to the icy surface than the vast ocean that hides below. Their work also makes it to Mars and our own planet. And Bruce Betts will share a terrific random space fact that ties Enceladus to yet another realm of ice, Titan. Did you catch Comet Leonard during its brief visit? Blake Estes did, and his gorgeous image tops the January 21 edition of the Downlink. Scroll down to read about that good-sized asteroid that also passed by last week. It got within about 2 million kilometers, or 1.2 million miles of Earth. It won't be that close again for another couple of centuries. We also learned about an exoplanet, discovered by a team of citizen scientists using data from TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. It's about three times as massive as Jupiter, but has about the same diameter, which is interesting. And you've probably heard that the JWST is now in orbit around that point in space called L2. It got there so efficiently that its fuel is now expected to last about 20 years, twice as long as planned. We've always got space headlines, great images, and other good stuff at planetary.org slash downlink. I won't lie, hearing that the plumes shooting spaceward from Enceladus might not originate all the way down in that moon's ocean was slightly disappointing. After all, we all dream of flying through them with a spacecraft capable of detecting very complex organics and maybe carrying a microscope, tools that could reveal evidence of life. Life that was minding its own business in a warm, salty ocean before it got sucked into a crack and spewed into the cold of space. But the modeling work done by the Meyer Ice Mechanics Group at New Hampshire's Dartmouth College doesn't eliminate that possibility. It just adds what may be a more realistic view of at least some of what's happening as much as a billion miles or 1.7 billion kilometers from Earth. Professor Colin Meyer and postdoctoral researcher Jacob Buffo joined me a few days ago for a conversation about the modeling they and other colleagues are doing, not just of Enceladus, but for Mars and, as we said, even our own world. Pluto and other topics were in the mix when I talked with Colin and Jacob, but we don't have time for our complete conversation here. You can catch it and another appearance by my colleague, Planetary Society editor Ray Pauletta, at planetary.org slash radio and from all the major podcast providers. Ray has just written a great article about the snow worlds of our solar system. You can read it at planetary.org. 
Colin and Jacob, thank you very much for joining me on Planetary Radio. Uh, Very happy to be able to talk to you about this recent work that may have a lot to say about looking for life on or under the ice on Enceladus, that moon of Saturn. Uh, But I think we may get to some other topics as well. Thanks for joining us here on Planetary Radio. Thank you so much. Really glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Our pleasure. As you guys know, the Cassini mission first showed us those plumes coming out of those so-called tiger stripes at the South Pole of Enceladus. This is back in 2005, so man, going on 17 years ago now. What's wrong with the widely expressed speculation ever since then, I'll call it speculation and not hope, that those plumes are coming directly through cracks from that ocean way down beneath uh, kilometers of, of ice. Colin? Yeah. So after the obser- that observation, two ideas were sort of proposed. And uh, one of the ideas was this Herford idea that the cracks went all the way through to the ocean. That was exciting because at the time, it wasn't clear whether there was an ocean on Enceladus. So it was hoped and thought that there was. And they didn't know how, how, how big it was, if it covered the entire moon or just a sort of like some sort of reservoir. So that's even still debated now, though the gravity data does suggest that it goes under the entire moon. But if you look back in, in the early teens, people were still drawing maps of, uh, of having sort of a regional ocean underneath the South Pole. But so this idea, this Herford idea that, that the cracks went all the way through the shell and that it was accessing sort of sub-ice shell uh, material and that was what was causing the plumes, that was one of the ideas that was proposed. But that actually wasn't the dominant idea when the first ideas came out. That The other oh. idea was proposed by Francis Nimmo and collaborators. And this was a sheer heating idea. And this, this was building off some of Francis's work, which said that on these tiger stripes, there was actually heat that was generated as sort of quakes moved along them, driven by tidal motions. As those quakes propagated along the fractures, they generated heat just in the way that putting your hands together and slipping them past one another might generate yeah. heat in your palms. That was a very exciting idea about what would be the source of this sort of heat anomaly. There's, there's a lot of heat coming out of these tiger stripes. This idea that the sheer heating was, was causing it caught a lot of attention uh, in around 2007. Your work with the modeling that you've done has followed up on this. It, it, I guess it was first presented uh, in December at the uh, American Geophysical Union uh, uh, fall meeting. It has shaken things up about the plumes, I think it's safe to say. I mean, it's kind of a big deal, right, if they're not coming from the ocean. I mean, you don't know that, but would you say that it's more likely, based on your modeling, that uh, the source is perhaps quite a bit closer to the surface? Well, I think one important thing to say about this is is that in the original shear heating model uh, that Francis proposed, he was looking at a pure ice shell. So there was no salt entrained in the shell Ah, and therefore uh couldn't produce any, any sort of the signal that Cassini observed. And so when we accessed the the problem, we said, okay, but we know that the shell is salty. And so shear heating, we should still analyze this problem, even in the case of of shear heating, because we know that there's salt entrained in the shell, and that would affect the shear heating dynamics. And then in relevant parameter regimes, we can still get material near to the surface that could be then geyser material. That sort of is the core of the result, is, is that even in shear heating regimes, we could still produce geyser material. Do I remember correctly, Jacob, that uh, those salts, they were also discovered by Cassini because it was flying through the plumes, right? It it couldn't detect really complex organic molecules, but it could pick up stuff like salts. Yeah, yeah. They flew through the plumes, essentially, and 
basically registered that there were salts as well as some silicates in the plume particles that they flew through and detected. So they did see those. So we know that they're coming from somewhere salty. And I think the big question was, where is that coming from? The go-to answer was the ocean. And I think the big step that Colin has taken in doing this modeling is showing that there are processes that can also produce these type of salty reservoirs within the shell. So you don't necessarily have to get all the way down through to the ocean to access some salty reservoir uh, of fluid. Jacob, it wasn't uh, maybe the major point you were making, but I, I do want to go back to what you said about the salt uh, affecting the, the melting point of that water. I mean, it's really, it's the same mechanism as salting roads, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the same reason that if you're in a cold place on earth, we put salt on the roads so that it melts at a lower freezing point. That happens in any salty system. So like, again, our, our ocean freezes at about negative two degrees Celsius as opposed to zero degrees Celsius, just because there's some amount of salt in it. And so that should be the same thing on ocean worlds and in these icy shells. Uh, some of the things that we're also looking at is can you have geological processes within these ices that could kind of localize these salts? Folks have coined this term called cryovolcanism or cryo magmatism. That's the idea that on these icy bodies, you would basically have volcanism, but instead of having liquid rock like we do here for volcanoes on Earth, it would just be salty water. This salt water will behave in kind of similar ways where it can fractionate out and split up and this salt can move around and potentially create different features in these ice shells. So that's another thing we're thinking about is, you know, how, how does this salt get distributed and what does that mean for the geological properties of these ice shells, just like we have all these different kinds of volcanisms and different geophysical processes occurring on Earth. What you're describing seems to me, I'm going to guess, only scratches the surface, no pun intended, of the complexity that has to go into the kind of modeling that you have done. I mean, nobody's been to Enceladus, at least not yet, but, but you and others have been able to build these models of what may be going on. I think it's utterly fascinating that you're able to do this, but what does it take to create these sorts of complex mathematical models, Colin? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that we've been doing is leaning a lot on models that have been developed for Earth for sea ice, as Jacob was talking about. There's a key idea in models when we think about solidification of sea ice is this idea of partial melting. Not only does, does the salt um, lower the melting point the, of the system that is working on salting the roads and things like that, but it also gives this sort of third system this where you can get partial melting. And so that means that when you go above a, a certain temperature, you cross this threshold and then you allows, there allows to be little pockets of melt within a matrix of, of ice. And so one way you can think about this is, uh, is, you know, taking a bowl of ice cream, put the bowl of ice cream in the, in the microwave, it will all melt and then it will be all liquid. But if you leave the bowl of ice cream out for just a minute or two, it is starting to melt, right? There's still ice chunks and other melt in there. But it's not fully melt, you know, and it's not fully solid. There's this this little this mushy zone as they yeah, and so that's what happens in sea ice on Earth. People have written down mathematical models for how you generate these mushy zones for for Earth systems, and this group at Oxford developed very powerful code to model these sea ice systems and the mushy zones that they develop. 
And so we're leveraging that code developed for this, this idea of uh, you know, having a mushy zone, a region of sort of partial melting. And we're using it not in a CI system, though sometimes we do analyze those systems as well, but we're using it in a context of Enceladus. I think one of the key ideas, getting back to your question, Matt, is we're starting with an idea. This idea is let's revisit the shear heating model of Francis Nemo. You know, let's add salts to it. We put that into this model, this CI developed model softball. And then we want to sort of like probe one physical question. And so the physical question we're after is if you add shear heating to this, do you produce a zone of partial melt around the fracture? Like that little bit of ice cream that's melting around the side. That then uh, allows the, the melt to then migrate along the fracture and then potentially out into a geyser. I think the key, key components to our thinking in these systems is identifying a question or a topic and finding a tools to, to analyze it and then you know where those tools come from and then looking at the sort of implications of that. You mentioned that you've adapted this model uh, that was developed at uh, Oxford. Uh, by the way, is this the one called Softball? Yeah, this is softball, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Love that name. Um, it seems very appropriate somehow. I note that you you had co-authors uh, on the presentation at AGU at Oxford, also UC Santa Cruz and uh, and NYU. So um, this is an, an ocean-hopping uh, finding. Indeed, indeed. So far, so good. I mean, is the data kind of matching up with what you thought, what the model told you you might see? Well, I mean, so all of this is is preliminary, right? So we haven't we haven't published this paper yet. Uh, we're still working on it. But yes, the, the, those are sort of our basic like two targets: is trying to figure out under what parameter regimes do we ob- do we observe the things that are observed in in Cassini. And you know, our preliminary work suggests yes that we can find parameter regimes that that, that can produce these sort of uh, that, that can match those observations from Cassini. Has this model and the results you have so far, has it at all affected your enthusiasm for some future mission to that moon of Saturn? Not at all. No, I mean, I think that, that in many ways, the goal of this is, is not to uh, dampen any, any excitement for Enceladus in any way. This, is, uh, this was purely my, my enthusiasm for Enceladus, finding a way to, to say, oh, this is, this is a cool problem. I would like to work on this. So marrying my excitement for Enceladus and science you know, I'm excited about trying to understand how things work and going to Enceladus and, and figuring this out. And, and you know, if we go to Enceladus or other lines of evidence prove that this theory is is completely wrong, I mean, that's that, that's flattery of the greatest degree, right? Huh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to, to learn how it, how it works. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just um, thrilled, to, thrilled to participate in it. Let's uh, move to that other world that we talk a lot about on this show, Mars. Uh, There was this quote in something that I read, if life ever originated on Mars, it may have followed liquid water to progressively greater depths. Now, we've talked a lot on the show about, hey, the place to look for life is under the surface, but most people, I think we're just talking about, you know, a handful of meters. You guys are talking about a lot deeper down, at least in the current day, right? How does this work? I think this is probably in in relation to some work that I had done with uh, Luju Ojha, who's a professor down at Rutgers. The big problem with Mars, right, is that at least currently it's hard to have water on the surface. And that's, that's what we're looking for is that water. And so he had kind of come up this, with this idea that if you have these thick ice sheets on Mars, if they can get thick enough, that you could maybe insulate the ground enough 
that you could basically melt the bottom of these ice sheets just from the geothermal heat at the base of them. And hmm. again, this is something that we see on Earth. So we're just ripping off glaciology again. But um, <laughs> so we basically created a model to simulate that to see if or how much ice you would need to to have, how thick these ice sheets would need to be to get this melting at the base. Because, you know, again, if you can produce this liquid um, environment at the base of these glaciers, then you could potentially house organisms. And that's something that we see in, in subglacial lakes on Earth as well. You know, these, these pockets of water beneath ice sheets in Antarctica that have been maybe separated for millions of years from the open ocean or the atmosphere or things like that. But there's, they're still full of life, bacterial and stuff like that. That was kind of the goal of that study. And, and we used some historical predictions of, of how much ice and water could have at one point been on Mars to basically predict how thick these ice sheets could get and kind of figured out that given the predicted climate models that these ice sheets could get thick enough to, to actually produce some significant melting at the base and potentially create environments that could house organisms through different glaciological cycles. So you speculate that that life, once it formed, perhaps 4 billion years ago, Mars was drying out already, and it's a pretty dry place now, that it may have found its way a lot farther down? Yeah, yeah. There's some great groups now that are looking at kind of like the present ground ice on Mars. So even though right now we just kind of see ice in the polar caps above the surface, there is probably, and there's good measurements that show that there's probably a ton of ice like in the ground. So think about more like permafrost on Earth. This is actually down deep beneath the actual surface. And if you keep going down below that, the idea is that you could probably get to aquifers beneath this ground ice. So you're just going to kind of follow follow that water down and down and down as it would be the, the survival strategy, I guess. If there were these communities, and then all of a sudden, you know, Mars loses its atmosphere and and then starts losing all of this surface water and ice that potentially they're just going to keep keep traveling down and following following wherever that, that liquid water is still stable. It's what I would do. Colin, what this tells me is that um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in your, your research group there at Dartmouth. Before we close out, I just wonder if you want to say anything about how this work and these models are telling us more about our own planet. One of the things that's, uh, that we're excited about here is connecting terrestrial processes to planetary processes and vice versa, trying to understand sort of these systems, whether they arise on Enceladus or on Earth or another planet, and see what's, what's sort of like translatable and, and what are some new directions that we can push. So I think it's an exciting nexus to be at, uh, you know, thinking both about planetary processes, but also about glaciers on Earth. And I think that one of the driving, a couple of the driving questions on Earth are climate change. Glaciers are disappearing, and as they disappear, sea levels are rising, and that's inundating communities and, and these sorts of things. Um, and so understanding the processes that are controlling that is really important. Involving a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different um, approaches to these things is, is really the, the best way to, to get at these questions. And that's planetary science for you, multidisciplinary, right? Listen, you guys are at Dartmouth up there in New Hampshire. You're no strangers to ice in your own environment. Uh, what's the weather up there today? 
Well, there's about a foot of snow on the ground, um, <laughs> and it's cold. It's a little icy, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful sunny day. Enjoy it, and uh, I hope that you can continue to enjoy this great work, this modeling of phenomena all over our solar system. Uh, my congratulations to you guys and and the rest of these researchers, and uh, tell Tara that we're sorry we missed her, but uh, maybe another time when we talk about uh, uh, her work on uh, on Pluto. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This was great. Colin Meyer and Jacob Buffo of Dartmouth College. I'll be back in a minute with Bruce Betts and this week's What's Up. You're listening to Planetary Radio. Hi again. It's Casey Dreyer, Chief Advocate here at the Planetary Society. Our 2022 Day of Action is March 8th. This is your chance to advocate directly on behalf of space exploration. You can learn more about this year's virtual event at planetary.org slash dayofaction. We provide expert training, talking points, and we'll even book your congressional meetings for you. If you live outside the U.S., we have opportunities for you too. It all starts at planetary.org slash dayofaction. Thanks. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are back with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who is ready to tell you about that night sky and um, a whole bunch of other stuff, including I will just bet a random space fact. Welcome. Before we get into it, I got this message for you from Kent Murley in Washington, who appreciated your pop culture reference last week. It was sort of an origami uh, reference that appropriately sailed right over my head. He reminded me that it was from Airplane, the movie. <laughs> yes, I, I don't even remember what I was referring to, but yes, you can make a you can make a, a brooch or a pterodactyl. It, yeah, it's um. Anyway, <laughs> yes. Moving on. What's up? Low evening west. Jupiter going away in a few weeks. Still hanging out there. And in the pre-dawn east, the party has started. We've got super bright Venus, and over to its right, Mars. They will be joined on January 29th by a very thin crescent moon. So uh, go check that out. Also, hey, it's northern winter. That means Orion. Check out Orion over in the southeast in the early evening. Draw a line through Orion's belt. One direction, you get Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, night sky. And the other direction, you get at least really close to the Pleiades star cluster. So have fun. But on to this week in space history. Uh, it is a sad week, or more positively, Space Heroes Week. Every fatality in a spacecraft in the U.S. space program happened during this week. Uh, 1967, the Apollo 1 Fire 86 Challenger in 2003, Columbia. We remember all of them and what they gave for space exploration and humanity. And to give a little bit of a much more positive note, 1958, Explorer 1 was launched, the first successful U.S. satellite. A big week in U.S. space history, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, we salute those heroes as we, uh, as we do every year. 
On to random space fact. Oh, I like that at the end. <laughs> you probably heard of Enceladus. I'm guessing you heard a lot about it just a little bit ago. Yeah, just in the last uh, half hour, 45 minutes. <laughs> but have you ever wondered how much bigger is Titan than Enceladus? Uh, have you wondered that, Matt? Yes. Uh, the answer is a lot. All right. Well, that's my random space fact for the week. <laughs> No, I've got more. Over 1,000 Enceladuses could fit inside Titan if you, you know, squished them up and got rid of the pore space. Wow. Titan's a lot bigger than all the other moons of Saturn. And no wonder people thought that Enceladus was too small to have a, an ocean inside. Surprise. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. We move on to the trivia question where I got mathematical-ish. And here was what I asked. I said, all of the following are about telescope primary mirrors. You know, popular with the kids these days. What is the sum of the number of hexagons of one Keck 10-meter telescope divided by the number of JWST hexagons plus Palomar-Hale telescope diameter divided by the Mount Wilson-Hooker telescope diameter? What does that math give you in the end? How do we do, Matt? I was surprised to see how many of you out there loved this and want more mathematically based uh, questions from Bruce. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? I will start with uh, this response from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Start out with the hex of Keck. It's 36, you know. 18 is the hex for Webb. Lagrangian, we shall go. Then take 200 inches for the Pyrex Palomar, and finally, 100 for the hooker seeing stars. So now we've done the research and our numbers are assigned as standard mathematical, our order is defined. Now both of the divisions give integers of two, so adding them will give us four. Is that the answer, Bruce? Yes, that is the answer, and nicely defines all of the numbers in the equation. Two plus two is four. We have proven it once again. <laughs> That's such a relief. And here's a surprising answer as well. Why surprising? Because I checked back through six years of entries and Mel Powell, funny man Mel Powell, has never won, at least not thanks to uh, random.org. He did win once because he had a funny response, but not because of a random choice. Well, Mel, it finally happened. Congratulations. Mel, you have won yourself that beautiful startorialist uh, necktie. It's the uh, gold ink on black, I think, that they're going to provide to you. And Bruce, I know that you have just been livid with envy because you're looking at my tie right now. I bought this from Startorialist. It's the uh, silver on, I think it's royal blue JWST tie, and I am just there. I put it on a nice shirt just so I could wear a tie for you. Oh, dude, it is so cool looking. Thank you, Startorialist, for uh, making this prize available to Mel, who no doubt will be thrilled. I will encourage you to provide us with a new contest. This one's to show that um, I, I'm, a, I'm a classy, classy dude, because that's what classy people call themselves, as classy, classy dudes. <laughs> Here's your question. What moon... What moon is named after a character from Shakespeare's King Lear? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until February 2nd. 
That's uh, Wednesday, February 2nd at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here's a prize that doesn't come up much anymore. It's a Planetary Radio t-shirt from our friends at Chop Shop. At chopshopstore.com is where you will find the entire Planetary Society merchandise collection, including that, uh, that really lovely t-shirt. And with that, I believe we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about but soft. What light upon yonder planet breaks? Thank you and good night. It is the chief scientist, and Bruce is the sun, who joins us every week here for What's Up. I am Big Pentameter, dude. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its Snow Angel members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astra. Astra.